0: I am honored to have the opportunity to introduce two men who probably understand the way the American people think better than we understand ourselves. These men are two of our country's most experienced researchers of public opinion, Bill McInturf and Peter Hart. Bill McInturf is the co-founder of Public Opinion Strategies, which has conducted surveys throughout the United States and abroad since 1991. In fact, they represent over 10% of our congressional leaders. And Mr. McInturff tried to add the White House as well when he conducted polling for Senator John McCain's presidential run. Peter Hart has, dedicated, has directed Hart Research Associates since 1971. They have also surveyed public opinion throughout the United States and abroad. His firm is one of the nation's most respected and accomplished political polling teams on the other side of the aisle. Over the years, they represented more than 40 U.S. Senators and 30 Governors. Peter also happens to have the added bonus of being a dedicated Duke parent who has taught public opinion and public policy here at Duke. Having conducted research for politicians, the media, private corporations, and public service organizations, both Mr. Hart and Mr. McInturf have examined public opinion from many points of view. And as Russell Train so eloquently described, the public engagement in environmental issues seems to have waned a bit over the last decades, and we would like to understand this better. So at the request of the Nicholas Institute as one of our first orders of business, Mr. Hart and Mr. McInturff had accepted a new project to help deepen our understanding about public opinion on the environment, particularly the intersection of personal attitudes and political behavior. They have joined us today to present the insightful results of this research. Mr. Hart, Mr. McIntyre, thank you.
1: I'm the uh, Bill McIntyre part of the team. Well, And I just uh, this is always a difficult task since uh, Peter and I are speaking to a more distinguished audience than our own distinction. Um, but I want to say in that context I have one distinction I think I can say with absolute confidence. I might be the only person here that has which is the Russell train that I know is Russell train the third, who is my son's best friend in school. They are 14 years old. They are two blonde boys who came to a new school. They're creating quite the social stir. Um, Russell is smart, thoughtful, funny, and engaging. And for those of you who raise teenagers, you can know how isolated those uh, dis- those adjectives are as you describe a 14-year-old boy. And it was just terrific to see his grandfather, to see what the you know the uh, the, the product of good breeding can do, to understand where those qualities come from. Um, Peter and I uh, were thrilled to work on this project, and we did it because we have the same interest you have, which is we were uh, approached by the Nicholas Institute, and they said, "Look, people say they care about the environment, but there's no as you're, as the Mr. Train described that frustration." There's no grit. There's no kind of, there's no momentum. There's no energy. What is causing the disconnect? Uh, Both Peter and I have done substantial work on this issue, and we decided to devote ourselves just to that topic. Um, What did we do? We did three focus groups of swing voters. And part of our thesis is that, um, you know, there's this caricature that people care about the environment, or they care about jobs, or they care about God and the creation, or they want to make sure we have development. And in fact, what is really true about people is is that all of those factors are important. So most of the work in those groups was spent to say, how do you approach making a decision about an environmental project? What's important to you? And then learning that language and then learning the insights from those groups, we went out and did a national survey. And what we did was to identify five kind of core reasons for this disconnect. And importantly, I think we found a, a way we'd like to think about the American electorate in terms of how to talk to them about this issue and identify who they are. And what we're going to do very quickly is Peter will talk about those disconnects and I'll talk a little bit about the structure um, of the electorate and I'll end a little bit as well with the challenge and the opportunity for the Nicholas Institute. But I'm going to turn it to my friend Peter to walk through those disconnects.
2: Thank you Bill. I'm delighted to be here and let me just say that uh, we talk about the Uh, The great uh, North Carolina writer, uh, uh, who basically, Thomas Wolfe, who said, you can't go home again. Uh, I am home again, and I'm delighted to be home again. Uh, I dropped a lot of money here. Uh, uh, My two marvelous kids were well-educated, and indeed, my daughter uh, was an environmental science Uh, participant and went to Beaufort so uh, we uh, indeed know uh, the great work that is being done at Duke and uh, I certainly enjoyed teaching across the street at the Sanford Institute Uh, we're not going to tell you what you want to hear we're going to tell you what you need to know and let us take you through the data very quickly and give you a sense of where we are. As you can see in terms of the methodology, uh, essentially what we're talking about is a national cross-section. Indeed, it was done at the end of August and the margin of error is approximately plus or minus 3.5%. Let me talk about the disconnect in American public policy. And uh, simply put, uh, what we can talk about is what will make you feel marvelous. If we could stop here, we haven't made it. Does, does the American public care? And are they involved? Uh, and do they want uh, better clean air, clean water, all of those things? The answer is overwhelmingly, 79%. So the answer is, why don't we just stop here, Pete? It's all done. Uh, we know where everybody's at, 40%. Doesn't make any difference if you're a Democrat, an independent, or Republican. Indeed, that's, uh, that's the way it is. But there's a problem. Everybody says I'm in favor of the environment. That is a one-sided issue. Uh, there isn't a debate. But the problem that you have is we're in an era where people care tremendously about uh, uh, about a lot of issues. And if you look at the environment, environment falls to the bottom of the of the barrel. It's down to 10%. Does that mean it's not important? No. But In an era where we have Iraq, when we have terrorism, when we have the problems with gas prices and jobs and social security and health care, all of those things, not surprisingly, uh, the environment's way down. And you look and you say, "Okay, uh, that's okay. It may not be at the top of the list." But don't people care tremendously and don't they think very seriously about this? The answer is, and this question is both uh, helpful and misleading. We ask people, what is the issue that if this were brought up, it would make a difference in terms of your vote? in a political campaign. In other words, it becomes single-issue voting. Obviously, 51% are not voting on gay marriage, but it gives us a sense of intensity and where people are coming from. Well, here's the problem facing uh, the environmental movement and where where you are. You're, again, down at the bottom. People care more about gay marriage. They care more about abortion. They care more about immigration. They care more about gun ownership and the environment is down there uh, at 31%. And I can tell you one thing, if you don't understand anything else about Washington, Washington is based upon intensity of vote. And so having broad support with no intensity core makes it very difficult to get major movement on the issues. You look forward in terms of this, and you take people who tell us I'm a self-proclaimed environmentalist. I care, I care as much as every one of you. But the answer is, among that group, where do you fall? You fall into fourth place uh, behind gay marriage, abortion, and illegal immigration. So you say to yourself, there's the difficulty. It's great that people are behind us, they care about us, et cetera but you turn it around and when it comes to the environment as a voting issue, at this stage of the game, it is not a voting issue, you are not a player. One of the things I want to tell you here and one of the things you need to discuss and we need to think about is how do you develop that core of individuals who say it is so important, I care that much and that's what we need to do. Then you look and uh, again, one in four of environmental, let's say, this is the determinant vote. You look at environmentalists, it's 39%. And those who have given money, uh, everybody here, you've all given money to the environmental movement. But when it comes to does it make a difference, it's only 35%. So that gives you a sense of that. Now, one of the things we want to talk about are where are the disconnects? What's happening out there? What are the problems? What are the challenges? Because Bill and I have one dedicated concern, and that is, how do you get it right politically? You're embarking upon a... Terribly important set of principles and ideas and what we're trying to do is to give you a sense of where people are coming from and what is important and how do you talk them to them not only as citizens but how do you talk to them as voters and how do you start to move legislation and what's important well let me start exactly where Russell Train uh, was beginning and that is one of the things he told you is, we believe that there's a lot been, has been done. He talked about uh, environmental degradation. Well, you look at the American public and they'll tell you the same thing. 57% say, I think a lot has been done on public policy. So what do you have here? You have a situation where almost 50% say, the environment around uh, my neighborhood and in my area is just fine. And you have 57% who tell us, look, we've made a lot of progress. And even the Congress, which is sitting, and Bill and I do the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, even the Congress is sitting down there at 26 28% approval, is getting 50% when it comes to something being done. So is there the sense of urgency? Is there the sense of importance? The answer is no, it isn't there. And then you talk to the people who say, No, nothing's being done well what's missing here is take a look at this people are concerned they're disappointed only sixteen percent are angry only sixteen percent are angry so there is no sense of outrage there is no sense of that intensity if you stop and think about all the things that the american public gets riled about these are people who say nothing's being done and if you translate that, that angry group, what, it's about 5%, 7% uh, of everybody. So you're sitting there with an infinitesimally small core. And you look at this, and you look, even though uh, among those people who feel about the lack of progress, only 30% of those people uh, have that anger feeling, as the case may be. So you look at this, uh, and that gives you a sense. Now, the second thing is, is it a longer-term concern, or it is, and again, these are the challenges and this is what's before us. The second major thing is, they don't see it as an immediate concern. It's a problem, but it's not an immediate concern. Now, all of us in this room know that when the water starts to get warmer, That means we have more intense hurricanes, and we know what it means, and everybody reacts to hurricanes, and suddenly we're putting in uh, $200 billion. But uh, from the focus groups that Bill conducted, when people start talking about it, they talk about it as a long-term problem. They've got big problems in front of them. They have to go to the gas station every day, and they have to pay $3 for a gallon of gas. You say, well, that's related to the environment, not to them. It's related to only one thing, what's coming out of my wallet. Third thing is, uh, they also see the negative impact. And we talk about long term and short term. One of the problems here is that people look and they say there are a lot of good things that come out of uh, a better environmental movement. It means better health, it means better water, we can make all kinds of advancements. But they also look, and one of the things that they look at are the negative effects. And as you can see, fully 87% of the people say one of the things that I think is going to happen is it's going to cost me more. It becomes more expensive, and you can see the intensity. And the other thing that they worry about is what it means to cars uh, in terms of their jobs, in terms of the economy. So all of these things are setting up the challenges that you're facing. And we can talk in an academic environment in terms of understanding the right thing. This is only about one thing. How do you take the public and move them from this point to a different point. And what does it take and what are the hurdles and what are the obstacles? That's what Bill does in business day in and day out and does it exceptionally well. It is the ability to be able to look at these things and, uh, and to uh, make the judgments, And it doesn't make any difference. This is one of the fascinating things on so many of these environmental issues. We talk about the polarization of America. When you look at the job rating of George George W. Bush, uh, what you find is Democrats hate them, Republicans love them, and independents are negative. But overall, on almost everything, there is that sharp polarization on so many issues as it relates to the environment, it isn't, it's a valence issue. Essentially, there isn't that same kind of polarization and you can see it here. Uh, Finally, last point I wanna make to you and that is what is happening in terms of the environment? Stop and think about it. When you hear about gay marriage and gay rights, there are only two sides of that issue. I'm in favor of it, I'm opposed to it. You talk about gun control, Two sides, I'm in favor of it, I'm opposed to it. Uh, You talk about abortion, there are two sides. You talk about in the environment, here's your problem. Look at the environment. You know, take your choice. You can be for energy conservation, you can be for rivers, you can be for endangered uh, uh, species and fish and wildlife and global warming and recycling and et cetera. And you say, no, 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 we're the environmental movement. Sorry, you have, and you can look in Washington. You have two zillion different movements out there, and those two zillion d- different movements. And you say, "Well, I can't understand why we're not collecting all kinds of people." Well, the problem is there is no unifying movement. And you say, "But we're for the environment." Well, yeah, some of you are for wildlife, and others of are you care about air and water, etc. And all I'm saying to you is if you're going to make it happen, one of the things you've got to do is, make, is build the core. And number two, what you have to do is to be able to package it in a way in which people can say, this is what I'm for. At this stage of the game, it is too diffused and too difficult. Let me, at this stage, turn it back to Bill, and Bill will take you through the next part.
1: Peter's been talking about these disconnects, the things that make action more difficult. And there's the a fifth disconnect, we think, which is understanding these kind of different pair of glasses. This is, in other words, what's the perspective and frame that people use to look at this issue? And uh, that's, that's a, um, an important part of what we did. Uh, what we did in the groups is we worked, as I said, long hard to say, okay, if there's, an, here's a kind of a generic environmental proposal how would you go about deciding whether you favor or oppose it? What factors do you look at? And we had drafted some factors based on our previous work. They reacted to the language, they reacted to what they think those factors were, and they told us other things about that uh, were important to them. And in terms of those factors, uh, we ended up in the research testing 13 of them. Uh, The number one factor people say is important to them, and uh, this is just based on self-description, is their desire to protect the environment for future generations. Um, uh, the impact, the the proposals on people's health. I think one very critical thing that's happened in the environmental discussion in the last decade is the movement to make the environment a personal health issue and I think that's had some positive consequence in terms of impacting people. Um, Now, on this list people say the number, it's only number six, the impact the proposal has on jobs and the economy. And so you might look at this list and you, and you look at these factors and say, oh, well, that's, that's powerful. In other words, people are a lot more concerned about the cons- future generations than they are about uh, concerned about the economy. Uh, but there's one problem with that. First, this is, gets to Peter's point about intensity. The people for whom the filter of the economy is an important filter are much more intense and i.e. in some cases not supportive of environmental goals and there are people who have this very broad nice notion we should do something for the future. So as we went through these factors, um, um, and then for example in terms of intensity, one of the bottom factors was uh, the amount this, this environmental change could mean on the government having control of regulating, you know, your own individual actions. Now people say this is not particularly important how they make the decision, however, For the people who say, that's really important to me, guess what, they have incredibly intense views and they are the least supportive people uh, of environmental causes. Um, So what we did is uh, taking these factors, we used uh, these kind of advanced statistical techniques where the computer looks at all 13 factors for each person and it gives them each a score, each of those factors a score, to say how important was each of those factors for that person? And then the computer says, essentially the the statistical model says, how do we predict the 13 factors, which set of those things best predict their attitude? And then we go one step further and we say, okay, we took that person out of 800. What people are like that person? Are there people who seem to have lumped the same kind of factors together in some stable way? And when we do that, it creates this list. And it creates a fairly stable typology. Typology is the word for how people look at this issue. And so it creates, and this is the easy. The easy are the extremes. It creates the contrarians. There's 7% of voters. They, were the, they said almost none of these factors was important to me, except I'm, one of the factors that was important was in impact would have on me. 34% of them are seniors, uh, and they were just turned off, turned out people who are not engaged in this issue. Um, 11% we called capitalists, meaning that their primary concern was the impact on jobs and economy. They are, in my mind, they were surprising to me, Peter, they were surprising because they are men, they are well-educated, they're affluent, uh, very high religious conservative component. Um, And in a lot of demographic ways, they look like some of the same profile of the regulators, but their views cannot be more different. Um, the regulators, uh, and, and by the way, the capitalists were Bush voters by roughly 50 points. The regulators, another, this is more like when we think of the, if there is a caricature of the, of the environmental movement, very well-educated, very affluent, very liberal, uh, and these are folks who say, when they said, yeah, it's important what government does in terms of what it, government does in regulation, what they meant is we want more of it. Uh, when you read their open end about what that does mean to you, they said, I want more of it, and they were in very, little, com, very compelling when you read the open ends. More of it means I want to restrict and limit a Republican administration who I think is, needs to be reined in and controlled. And not surprisingly, they voted for Kerry by almost 50 points. Now, those are, and then the, the other group that's kind of really clear was we call them the narcissists. Um, we call them that because they said pretty clearly in these, in these factors and in the open ends, what they said is, I only care about the environment except it affects my life. Uh, And if it's not my job, my health, my family, my community, I really don't care very much. Um, And uh, to live up to the worst feelings people in this audience might have, Republicans, they're kind of a Republican group. Um, um, uh, And then we had, we call them the empathizers and the compromisers. The empathizers, uh, 60% are women, uh, and what weighed them a little bit mushy is a little bit mushy is that they said almost every single factor they scored higher than the aggregate. They said they kinda of looked at everything and said I can see that, I can see that, I can see that. and, um, uh, and But they're actually a very important swing voter group. But the, t- to me, the group that was of most interest to me, if, when Peter talked about what we do for a living, if this were an initiative and we were being hired to, to on your behalf to go win an environmental initiative in California, I would probably spend on that list I would spend some chunk of time with women empathizers and then I would spend a ton of time with the compromisers. Because the compromisers are kind of these, uh, uh, these kind of fair witnesses, these kind of brokers between both sides. Because they rated very highly on long-term concern about the environment, but they also rated really highly some of the jobs and economic stuff. And that when we call them compromises, it's because both sets of things were important. And the other reason they're of interest is they are a really split political group. They're kind of split by gender, they were split in the election. And my sense is if you look at who you could influence up there, um, that uh, in terms of shifting and changing opinion that in in my hypothetical model, we have to go actually win an election around this data, it would be moving and making sure women empathizers were on your side and that you really, really worked hard at compromisers. So, um, I'm going to skip through the next slides. These are just profiles we did that kind of make some of the points I made. Um, Peter and I are trying to provide an overview. There's plenty more to share. Now, sometimes you'll say, what's the point of this? How do you use this stuff? Uh, I just want to make one point. Peter's correctly talked about the polarization, is that when we use this typology, we did it for a reason which is if you look at the normal way we look at voting attitudes about the environment, like Republicans and Democrats, on the difference between Republicans and Democrats, for example, in a question like, do you wanna protect the environment or do jobs or protect jobs you satisfied with, or we're doing both, that on that question, Democrats, say protect the environment by 39 points, Republicans by seven, There's a, that's about a 32 point net difference. When you look at what we did with these typologies, the regulators say they're, they want to protect the environment by 59 points. The capitalist, those, uh, the most pro-jobs groups said, I want, to, I want to encourage job growth by four points. That's a 63-point spread. In other words, these groups did a heck of a lot more to really divide the American electorate uh, in a very different way to understand the range of opinion. The other thing that's powerful about doing this typology is that in fact Peter and I could live next door to each other, um, and the point is, Peter and I—if you look at us, attractive men, clearly—but you know, we're of a certain age, gray hair, fairly settled. You know, uh, uh, we did not invite—you know—we did not invent cardiac stents. We haven't made that kind of contribution. But we've done our thing, we're fairly comfortable. But the point is, we live next door to each other in classic political typology. You say, well, those guys are the same. And the point is, Peter and I would have very, very different views as we do in lots of issues despite our friendship. And what this set does, it kind of picks out of the neighborhood and says, they can look the same demographically, but they have very different attitudes and we can tell you how to communicate to that person. Um, So uh, what are some of the challenges? Um, what does it mean? Uh, number one, uh, there's a good, here's a very positive thing to say, that when we were doing these groups, we talked about who's credible in this issue. And I, let me describe another frustration that I've heard a lot when you talk to people in the environmental community. They say, well, these are the facts. These are the facts. And when you sit in groups and you give people the facts, what they say is paid for by whom? And so they don't see that there are some neutral fact. What they see is there are influence and special interest groups, and that the world is paid for. And so when you say, these are scientists who did this, okay, well, who paid for the science? Who was the funder? And the odds are, they believe, there'd be a vast difference in what the scientists report if they were paid for by an environmental organization versus a a major business group. And so they get very muddled about that there are no facts. There are only things that are competing with each other for information and frankly they use the, the climate change conversation the perfect example. That there is not a neutral set of facts, that, there is this, that no one quite agrees that there's one set of facts versus the other and that they can't sort it out. And as a consequence what they said is that it would be terrific to have an academically based institute um, that could be the arbiter of that, that uh, could be credible in that regard. Um, and um, Uh, But as you move forward, um, you know, sometimes uh, groups get very frustrated. They say, well, that's really interesting, but, like, so now what do we do? And you say, well, I always write my best surveys after we've already gotten the information from the first set of data. You know, this is an iterative process. But the points that we're making are, um, uh, number one, that uh, that one we have to both make this less diffuse and more and more clear in terms of what is the issue we want voters to focus on and it has to be made more immediate. That it can't be that we're talking simply about something that's in far some distant future that we have to find a way to communicate to the impact it has uh, on them on their life and it has to be way more immediate. Uh, Number two it is very powerful to learn to sit in groups and say Okay, well, here's the deal. You can, ha- you can improve the environment, but only if you raise taxes and only if you cost us jobs. In other words, they believe that there is an automatic presumption that one set of good policies leads to these other consequences. Um, and it is a very, very important that that, in- that be interrupted that we have to interrupt the dialogue that says that environmental progress automatically translates into higher taxes and job loss. Uh, that not acceptable, that's not acceptable to let that stand, uh, uh, stand and as I said and as Peter said that despite the frustration that we have to make more clear about the urgency of uh, making progress. Um, the things that we would do and we would look forward to doing over time is having introduced this typology, having kind of put it out and this is like an academic thing you know Having shared it, well, people can replicate the work. And then what you would begin to do is you'd begin to kind of put those folks in the compromisers in a focus group room. You would draft different sets of materials. You would create material that would be targeted to those different audiences to try to learn more about how to communicate with people and, importantly, to teach elected officials uh, how to, make the, to do that communication since they have an incredible role in public policy. But I do think, and this is something we got asked uh, yesterday in the press conference, just as a shorthand, when they said, well, when will the environment matter? And this is really a very simple equation. Uh, In 1991, there's a special election in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, A very popular, very former Republican governor ran, and he got wiped out. And he got wiped out because a Democrat ran on people in prison have health care, why don't you? And every American has a right to decent health care and it was a stinging rebuke to the Bush administration uh, the Demo- and the, that it set the stage for Mr. Bush's loss in 92, it was the same issues, same themes but a heck of a lot of politicians woke up the day after and said, oops, I better do something about health care. And so what Peter is saying and, w- and what we're saying in a nice way when Peter was talking about these single issue voters is there has to be consequence for a politician. He or she has to say, oops, I crossed this line only at some electoral peril and that there's enough political pressure Uh, that it causes me to kind of think about my behavior and think about where I want to be positioned. Uh, But to do that, you know, is to do that is to also learn how to talk to people in a way that compels action and I think we've made uh, substantial progress and we look forward to working with the Institute to continue to do that in the future. Thank you.